Good morning, everybody. And across the street, the video venue, and those of you who are joining us online, I'm so glad to welcome all of you. Thanks for coming out on this cold, cold Sunday morning. Grab your Bible or whatever you're using this morning and go with me to the book of Revelation in the second chapter and do that real quickly. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 in just a few minutes, but I want you just to turn there and hold that ready. I want to talk to you just a minute about an incredible event that happened here on Friday night. Uh, most of you know what I'm talking about because many of you are involved and we've been promoting this for some time, but we participate in a program called Night to Shine, and here on our church campus we hosted a prom for some very special people in not just our community, really honestly we had people coming from all over central Indiana, and I don't have words to describe how amazing it was, so let's just watch this recap video together. I know it's going to be a blessing to you as we watch it together. through my head 
Anybody need a tissue? I'm telling you, it was just an incredible experience. I've never been more proud of my church. Here's the funniest night of the evening for me. Uh, I was dancing with one of these girls out on the stage, and, and she goes to our church. I, I know her, and she's the sweetest thing. And we were, you know, we're just kind of dancing and stuff. And then I noticed the camera was on me, and folks, I got some moves that I just can't. <laughs> sometimes I can't contain, and so I, I, I just started and she looked at me, she stopped, and she looked at me, and this is literally what she did. She went. <laughs> just walked away. Just rejected right there in that moment. One of the greatest things I've ever been involved with. We had the over 200 prom goers from, as I mentioned earlier, all over central Indiana. Had 450 volunteers serving in a variety of different ways, and it was just an absolutely incredible evening. Thank you to everybody who helped make that possible. Let's just pray and thank God for what happened here, okay? Father, thanks so much for a chance to just to review uh, just the events of Friday night. And I'm so deeply, deeply grateful for everyone who volunteered, for the folks who worked so hard for so long in anticipation of this event, all those who came together uh, in the days right before to decorate and prepare, those who were there that night serving in a variety of different roles, those who came back uh, and their only participation really in the evening was to clean up and just to help get everything back to order, all of that. And I thank you so much, and I thank you that uh, we have a church that loves, loves, loves to serve people. Give us more opportunities. Help us to be open to more opportunities. Thank you that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made and that you love us with an everlasting love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 What a great evening. Let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing uh, a seven-week series. We began last week. We're looking at seven letters to seven churches uh, that were written and recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Let me just remind you of two words that I gave you last week as we began this study that we need to remember in relation to every letter. Those are the words historical and perennial. Historical because this is not figurative, symbolic writing here. These are seven literal historical churches in Asia Minor that received letters from Jesus. And then we use the word perennial because while each one is specific and in the context there's a message for each church, the truth is the things that are talked about in every letter are perennial in that they are issues that have been in lots of churches throughout all generations. And so there are great lessons for us to learn in this letter. Jesus is the one who sends them. So let's dive in. If you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2, stand with me wherever you are in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. And I'm going to read Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 this morning. This is to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now, pause right there and look up here at me for a moment. We have limited time, so let me just talk about something real quickly. As I said, Jesus is the correspondent. He's the one writing this letter, something that's interesting to hang on to. In ancient days, when you wrote a letter, it was uh, customary to identify yourself 
in the beginning of the letter rather than the end. When we write letters today, we sign them with our names, and that's how we identify the letter writer. We say, sincerely, or in Christ's love, or God bless, and we write our name. But in ancient days, you identified yourself in the beginning of the letter, and so it's very clear that Jesus is identifying himself here. First of all, he calls himself the first and the last. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Look down here in your Bible, and you'll see that the words first and last are capital. You see that in your Bible? This is a reference to Jesus as the eternal God, as the eternal God. And in the Old Testament, on several different occasions, God the Father is identified by this exact term. He is the first and the last. And Jesus is writing and saying, this is who I am. I'm the eternal God. And he goes on to say, the one who died and came to life again. And, of course, we know that that's Jesus. He's the only one. He was the God who came to this earth as a man and died and was buried. And then on the third day rose from the dead. We're going to celebrate that in just a handful of weeks on Easter Sunday. Again, it be a great weekend here at Mount Pleasant. So there's no question in anybody's mind that Jesus is the correspondent. John is writing what he's receiving from Jesus in the book of Revelation. We go on. Verse 9 says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Okay, there it is. God add his blessing to the reading of that. You can be seated this morning. Now, I'd love to tell you a lot of things about the city of Smyrna, but I just don't have the time this morning, so I want you to know three things about the city. First of all, it was a beautiful, spectacular place. Second, and this is so critical, number two and three are critical to our understanding of this letter. Number two, this was a city that was extremely, extremely loyal to Rome. This was a city that was very proud, took great pride in being a part of the great Roman Empire. That was significant. We need to understand that about Smyrna. The third thing I will tell you about this city is that they had a population in New Testament times of about 250,000 people. And a large, large percentage of that population were Jewish. And you got to know that to understand this letter. A large part of the population of the city of Smyrna was made up of Jewish people. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the church in Smyrna. All we know about it Literally, all we know about the church in Smyrna is what we just read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. There's no other reference in the New Testament to this church, none. It uh, is widely believed that it was a church that was planted either by the Apostle Paul or by one of the associates of the Apostle Paul or one of the converts of the Apostle Paul while he was involved in a three-year ministry in the city of Ephesus. We have a little bit of a geographical map. You can see where these churches are located there, right on the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea there. You see Ephesus down there on the lower left. It's believed that these letters, the order that they come in in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is based on the order in which they would have literally physically been delivered by a postman of sorts in ancient days. And so the first letter was to the church in Ephesus. Notice just 40 miles up the road is the city of Smyrna and the church in Smyrna. So most people believe it was started, planted by Paul or one of his associates or one of his converts. I will tell you, the thing that we know for sure about the church in Smyrna is that the believers there were enduring a crushing, crushing persecution 
This is known as the persecuted church. An interesting thing is, the Greek word translated Smyrna comes from the Hebrew word translated myrrh. We're familiar with myrrh. When the wise men came to see Jesus, they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and what? Myrrh. We know what myrrh is. Myrrh is a perfume. And here's the thing about the perfume of myrrh. It was produced by crushing a fragrant plant, by crushing a fragrant flower. And the church in Smyrna was known to be the persecuted church because literally, I want you to understand this, literally, it was being crushed under the heavy weight of persecution. Now, of all the things that we can say about persecution without question today, the most powerful one is that persecution always has a purifying effect in the lives of believers and in the lives of churches. In fact, throughout history, there's this undeniable paradoxical truth that the more Christians and the more churches are persecuted, the stronger they become and the purer their faith becomes. We can illustrate that in a lot of different ways, but let me tell you a story that comes right from India and our mission partners, Dr. Ajay Law and his wife, India, Indu, rather, excuse me, who, is the found, who are the founders of the Central India Christian Mission in Demo, India. They've been living link partners with Mount Pleasant for over 25 years. And I'm blessed to have a great personal relationship with Ajay. And actually, I'm the chairman of the board of Central India Christian Mission. Recently, he shared with me the story of a man in the ministry named Kamal, who was the very first convert, the very first Christian convert from a village called Karasa. And interestingly enough, the people living in the village of Karasa were listed by Central India Christian Mission as an unreached people group, or in other words, they had never heard the name of Christ. They'd never heard the gospel message that you and I are so, so familiar with. Not long after Kamal's conversion, he and his brother were traveling home to their village after attending a wedding in another village when they were attacked by about 15 anti-Christian extremists in their village. They didn't want the message of Christ or the gospel to come to their village. They were angry at his conversion, and so they attacked he and his brother. They beat them with iron rods almost to death. They were rescued and taken to a local hospital where they spent a long time in the intensive care unit of that hospital. Ajay and Indu visited them visited them while they were there, and Kamal told them when he was able to speak again, he told them that this attack and this persecution would only be a catalyst for him to do more for the Lord, and he said, I want to move from basically just being a convert to Christ to someone who has dedicated their life to full-time Christian service, and that's what he did. When he was released from the hospital, he returned home, and the same men who attacked he and his brother with iron rods came to attack his home, but he went outside of his home and in the presence of all the people in the village, he confronted them boldly in the name of Christ and he was protected by Christ and not only did he protect his home, but he caught the attention of the people in his village. One of them was an influential police inspector named I can't remember his name or think of it at the top, off the top of my head, but he was so moved by what he saw that he was willing to talk with Kamal, and Kamal converted him to Christ. And not only did he become a convert, but he, came, he became very evangelistic and went on to plant a church in another village that today has over 200 believers. Ajay said all this happened five years ago, and Kamal has been taking the gospel to his area in India faithfully, and today he's taken the gospel to 20 villages planted six churches that together have over 2,000 believers, and they've seen 15 young men come from those new churches to attend the Central India Bible Academy to study to be pastors themselves. He's still preaching, still sharing the gospel in spite of the persecution that continues. And here's the truth about persecution. You should write this down in your notes or in the margin of your Bible. It either exposes false faith 
or it purifies real faith. That's what persecution does. It either exposes false faith or it purifies real faith. And here's another truth. It does this not just in the lives of believers, but it does it in the church as well. Persecution purifies the church because false believers and hypocrites are not going to hang around the church when the church is experiencing persecution. They're going to be the first ones to leave. Only the faithful hang around. And this was the reality of the church in Smyrna. It was a faithful church. In fact, it was such a faithful church. This is an interesting thing, and you should write this down in your notes. Of all the seven churches that are written to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, only two of them receive letters that have absolutely no condemnation or rebuke from Jesus, and Smyrna is one of them. The other one is the church in Philadelphia that we'll talk about later. The church in Smyrna was a faithful, faithful church under the great, great weight of crushing persecution. Let's understand a little bit more about that. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one. We've got to do this quickly. The words, the commendation. The good things that Jesus has to say, in other words, about this letter, or about this church, rather. And it's a little bit different in this letter. Revelation 2, 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's a powerful verse of Scripture, and it begins with the words, I know I know. Jesus says, I know. Let me tell you, everybody look up here. There's power when you hear Jesus say the words, I know. I told you last week, and I'll remind you, that there are multiple words in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, that are translated know, but there's a very specific one used here. It's the Greek word edo. And what's significant about that word is that it means I know completely. It describes complete knowledge. There are other words in the Greek language translated know that talk about a progressive knowledge or a knowledge that's discovered over a period of time. But when Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, to the believers there, I know you're afflictions and I know your poverty and I know the slander that you're enduring. He's saying, I know everything about your experience. Nothing has escaped my view. I've seen it all. And there's great comfort to take in that because how many of us have had times in our lives when we've been going through difficulty and we think to ourselves, does anybody even know what I'm going through? Does anybody know or care? Does anybody see this? And the truth is Jesus does. He always does. And there's great comfort to be found in that knowledge. Jesus, when he says, I know, it's not just words. He's saying, I'm a part of this. Nothing has escaped my view. And so he said, I know the three things that you're experiencing. The first one is is, uh, what he calls afflictions. In verse 9, he said, I know your afflictions. The word he uses for afflictions in the Greek language is the word philipsis, which means a pressing or a pressing together or a crushing And that's fitting for what I've already told you about this church. He said, I know you're being crushed by the heavy weight of persecution. Remember, the name Smyrna is a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word for myrrh that means the crushing of a fragrant flower to produce a fragrance unlike any that you had experienced before. Jesus said, I know those afflictions. I know the crushing experience of your daily life. Then he said, uh, the second word that he used to describe it is poverty. He said, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Let's talk about this for just a minute. This means exactly what you think it means. It means these people, these believers in Smyrna, this was a poor church. There are lots of words translated poor or poverty in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, but there are two that are more common than any of the others. The first one is the Greek word panes, which means poor in the sense that you just don't have anything extra. And I bet you there have been times in all of our lives when we've experienced this. 
We got enough to put a roof over our head. We got enough to put clothes on our back. We got enough to put food on the table to just get by. But we don't have anything extra, right? You ever been there? Nothing superfluous, nothing extra, no add-ons, no luxuries, nothing. We're just meeting the basic needs of life. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. The other word that's really common for poor or poverty is the Greek word patokos. And it means literally that you have nothing at all. It describes someone who lives in total and absolute poverty, someone who is completely destitute. And this, friends, was the reality of the believers in Smyrna. They had nothing. Their daily survival was a challenge. But what's interesting here is that Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And then he goes on to say, yet you are rich. Why does he say that? Well, it's because even though they had nothing from a worldly standpoint, when Jesus looked at them and he saw the reality of their lives, he knew that they were rich in spiritual things. He knew they were rich in spiritual life. They were rich in the things that really mattered. They were rich because they had holiness. They were rich because they had the power of God in their lives. They were rich because they had love. They had joy. They had experienced the grace of God in their lives. They had peace. They had true friends. They had brothers and sisters that they knew that they could count on. And you could go on and on and on. They were rich because they had all All the things that really matter in life, they were the poor, rich church. It seems like it's it's, it's, it's too much of a contrast, but this was the reality. They were the poor, rich church. Look with me at these words on the screen from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, or excuse me, verse 17, because in contrast to that, a church that we're going to talk about later, in fact, it's the last church we'll look at in the study, the church at Laodicea, was a rich church that was really poor. In verse 17 of chapter 3, this is what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He said, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize, and this is what Jesus says about them, you are wretched, pitiful, note this, poor, blind, and naked. And so these churches were polar opposites of each other. The church in Smyrna was the poor, rich church, while the church in Laodicea was the rich church that was really poor. Spiritual matters, I hope that we all understand this. Spiritual things, spiritual riches, those are the things that really matter in this life. And the church in Smyrna that was being crushed every day under the weight of persecution was filled with spiritual riches. And you know, one of the reasons was because, and I already told you this, because the believers there were the real deal. I told you that one of the things that persecution does in the local church is it drives out the false believers. It drives out the hypocrites. And so all you have left are the people who are deeply committed, the people who have real faith. And the persecution purifies them. And part of the purification is understanding as you look at life, what really matters and what doesn't matter. That you can have nothing by this world's standards and you can have everything by God's standards. I've seen the reality of this in my life dozens of times and almost always it's come when I've traveled out of this country and I've visited a mission field in a different part of the world. I remember the last trip that I went on. It's been some time since I've been on a mission trip, but the last trip I went on was in 2008 and I traveled to visit our partners in Poland and I traveled to visit our partners in India and then I traveled to visit some potential new partners in Africa in the country of Kenya in the city of Nairobi. There's an organization called Missions of Hope. I think we have some pictures that we can show you from that trip. And I visited this place called the Mathara Valley where they ministered to people. Look at the poverty that they lived in. 
This is the reality, and that doesn't even, that doesn't even tell the story. This, in this Mathura Valley, there are thousands of people there, and thousands of people are forced to share community bathrooms. In a street like that, it's not uncommon to see raw sewage running through the street. People there have absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. And yet I'm telling you, these are the most joyful people I've ever met in my life. On one occasion, uh, we went into the homes of a couple of women that lived there, and these are women. One of the things that Missions of Hope does is they have a ministry of microfinance, and they give loans to people who are living in deep, deep darkness that give them the opportunity to get out of that and have a new life. And so we visited in the homes of two women who at one time were prostitutes. This is how they supported themselves and their families. But they had become converted through the ministry of missions of hope and they'd received a loan and they had turned their lives around. One of them had begun to manufacture and sell soap. One of them had begun to manufacture and sell this bread that was very popular among the people. And we went into their homes. And let me tell you, I'm using the word homes as loosely as possible because I guarantee you this. I guarantee you this. There are people sitting right in this room and watching me across the street and watching me online who have sheds in their backyard that are nicer than the homes that these people lived in. Far nicer. If you've got a broken down shed, it's nicer than the homes that these women live in. They had nothing, nothing but I never met more joyful people in my life. There's a difference between worldly riches and spiritual riches. How many of us know that's true? I mean, really, I mean, really know that's true, even though we spend a good deal of our lives pursuing the wealth and the riches of the world. And that's what Jesus was saying about the church in Smyrna. He said, you have nothing, and then at the same time, you have everything. You're poor by the world's standards, but at the same time, you're rich, you're rich in the things that matter the most. I hope, I hope someday you get an opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip where you can see this firsthand. I would encourage you so strongly, if, you are, if your parents have, and your children are still at home, to take your children with you sometime. I know when spring break rolls around and fall break rolls around, we like to go to the beach and we like to take trips to theme parks. And I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I've done that with my family. But if you ever have the chance, whatever the cost, I would just encourage you to do this and invest yourself and your time in something that's really eternal and show that to your children as well. I would encourage you to do that. The third thing that Jesus said that described the reality of their persecution was slander. He said, I know your afflictions. He said, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. And then he said, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. The Greek word that he uses there for slander is the word blasphemia. And it's clear that we get the English word blasphemy from that word. It's a strong word because it's used in the scriptures primarily to identify harsh words that are spoken toward God, and that's how serious this slander was among these believers. Now, here's the question. Why? Of all the churches, why was the church in Smyrna suffering under the weight of such intense persecution? What was it about them? Well, that answer, there's two answers to that question. The first answer is found in history. The second answer is found in our text. It's actually found there in verse 9. The first answer that's found in history is found in something that was called emperor worship. Write that down in your notes. During this period of time in the Roman Empire, the emperor, a man named Domitian, demanded that once every year all the people in the Roman Empire would burn incense to him and make the statement, Caesar is Lord. 
And failure to do so would result in severe punishment. Oftentimes, the punishment was death. In fact, historians, I read this week, historians report that in the Roman Empire, and listen to this, in Smyrna in particular, there were mass executions of Christians who refused to bow their knee to Caesar. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said, I know, I've seen your afflictions. I know that you're being crushed. And even those who refused to bow to Caesar, who refused to burn the incense and say Caesar is Lord, but weren't executed, were branded as rebels and treated as such. And listen to me, this is one of the reasons why they were so poor, physically poor. Because when you would burn incense to Caesar and you would say Caesar is Lord, you would receive from the Roman Empire a certificate that said that you did. And so you would be a citizen in good standing or you'd be a resident in good standing. And that certificate would be good for a year until it was time to do it again. It was an annual thing. If you didn't have that certificate, no one was going to hire you. No one was going to give you a job. No one was going to show you any mercy or grace at all. And that's the reason why they were so physically poor because they refused to bow to Caesar. The second answer is found in the latter part of verse 9. He said, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He said, yet you are rich. He said, listen to this. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember, I told you in the beginning about the city of Smyrna, the thing that you needed to know was that of the 250,000 estimated population during New Testament times, a large percentage, a large portion of those were Jews. There was a large Jewish population, and that's who Jesus is talking about here. This is not symbolic or figurative language. He's talking from a purely physical standpoint about people who have a Jewish heritage, people who at once were a part of the Jewish, at one time rather, were a part of the Jewish synagogue. But because the city of Smyrna was so in love with Rome, remember I told you that, because they were so proud of being a part of the Roman Empire and because so many of the Jewish people living there had become rich doing business with Rome, they were in league with Rome. And all of the darkness surrounded by that, and so Jesus makes what is really an absolutely shocking statement in the latter part of verse 9 when he says these Jews are a synagogue of Satan. Soak that in for a minute. Don't miss the significance of that. What Jesus is saying is that these Jews are followers of Satan. They're worshipers of Satan. They're committed to doing the will of Satan, whether they understood it or not. These are the Jews that are going out of their way to bring this persing, or this crushing, rather, persecution into the life of these believers. This shouldn't surprise us, honestly. You can't read the book of Acts. Remember, it's the history book of the New Testament. It tells us how the church began and how the church grew. You can't read the book of Acts and not see the hostility of the Jews toward the Christians in the early days of the church. It was the same hostility that they directed toward Jesus, the same hostility that ultimately sent Jesus to the cross. I'm not being anti-Semitic, and I'm not being insensitive when I'm talking about this. This is what the Bible says. This is from Jesus himself. He calls these Jews a synagogue of Satan. Jews commonly persecuted Christians. They accused Christians of cannibalism because they didn't understand the reality of what the Lord's Supper stood for. They accused them of uh, immorality because because Christians would greet one another with a holy kiss. They accused Christians of breaking up families because oftentimes when one spouse would become a Christian or a believer and the other wouldn't, it would create tension in the home because of the kind of commitment that Jesus called for, and they accused them of being rebels because of their refusal to burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and you can go on and on and on. They did all of this to try to destroy their faith, to try to destroy the Christian faith. 
And if you ever had a question at all in your mind about what Jesus thought about those actions of the Jews, then it's clear, it's answered here in verse 9 when he says, they are a synagogue of Satan himself. And this, friends, is why the church in Smyrna was being crushed the way it was under the weight of persecution that was manifest in what Jesus called afflictions and poverty and slander. It was a horrific time for these believers. Right down next to number two, the words of the council. We move on to verse 10, and in verse 10, Jesus says to these believers, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you a crown of life. After Jesus commends them for their faithfulness, for enduring all that they endured, he basically tells them, hang on because there's more to come. I'm I'm certain that's not what they wanted to hear. Hang on because there's more to come. But he says, if you're faithful all the way up to the end, even to the point of death, there's a reward for you. So hang on, hold on, don't give up. Be faithful I hope that all of us understand this morning that experiencing persecution and suffering as the result of our faith is really a part of the Christian life, and the Bible tells us that. Look at these words on the screen from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. In fact, read these words with me. Let me hear your voices loud and strong. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the apostle Paul writing this. He says, in fact, this is a fact of the Christian life. If you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. And the truth is, if you and I are not experiencing that on some level in our lives, then maybe our lives are not as righteous as they should be. Maybe our lives are not as godly as they should be. And I don't say that lightly. The persecution that you and I would face in the world today, it looks a lot different than what it looked like in the time of these believers in Smyrna, but it's persecution all the same. And so here's the deal. If you and I have never been rejected by someone because of our Christian convictions, if we've never been rejected by someone because our faith exposed the darkness of their life, or our faith made them too uncomfortable to be around us, then there's something missing in our lives. I want to be careful in what I'm saying, but I want to be clear at the same time. We're supposed to be the light of the world. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What does light do? Well, light reveals and dispels the darkness. And that's what these believers were doing in Smyrna. They were paying a heavy price for revealing and dispelling the darkness. And Jesus says, listen, I know, I see it all, but you need to understand, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But hang in there, Stay strong even to the point of death and there's a reward that's waiting for you. That hasn't changed. We see the reality of this persecution all around us. We live in a society and a culture that demands tolerance and acceptance of everyone today, of things. Honestly, if we're going to be honest, demands tolerance and acceptance of things the Bible calls wicked and evil. And when someone stands up to that, when someone stands up for faith, when someone stands up for a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview, what happens? They're attacked and they're accused and they're targeted in the worst possible ways. And all of this, Jesus reminds us, comes from Satan and the people who either knowingly or unknowingly do his bidding and his will. In verse 10, Jesus makes a statement to the church in Smyrna. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And that just affirms to us how active our enemy, the devil, is, how active Satan is in trying to destroy 
the testimony of your faith and the testimony of your life and the ministry and the testimony of churches just like this one. And here's the deal. God has chosen in his sovereignty oftentimes to allow this to happen. I can't explain that to you this morning because I'm not sure I understand it in, 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 uh, in totality. But how am I or how are you as finite created beings supposed to understand the mind of an infinite creator? But the Bible makes it clear that God even though he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, has chosen to allow this kind of persecution and the suffering that is a result of this persecution to happen in the world today. Ever read the Old Testament story of Job? If you've never read the Old Testament story of Job, just read the first couple of chapters sometime today. And how Job was such a righteous man that God said there's no one like him. And Satan says the only reason why he's righteous is because you build a hedge of protection around him. But take down the hedge and let me have my way with him and you'll see what he's really made of. And God said, take your best shot. He put some provisions on what Satan was able to do, but he gave him the opportunity to bring suffering and persecution into his life. And Job suffered in horrific ways. He had great losses, unlike most that any of us will ever know. And it was a difficult experience for him, and he had times when he was doubting and he wavered a little bit, but in the end, his faith was strong. God allows this to happen at times. We need to understand that. This is a part of our lives as believers in this world. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus spent precious last hours with the disciples trying to encourage them. In Luke's record of that, in Luke chapter 22, we have the record of a conversation between Jesus and Peter, Simon Peter. This was right before Jesus revealed to him that he was going to deny him. Peter was making some bold statements, and I don't have time to turn there and read this word for word, but in verses 31 and 32, I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus looked at him, and he said at one point, he said, Simon, Simon, which is significant. If you know anything about the life of Simon Peter, there were times when Jesus called him Simon. There were times when Jesus called him Peter. Simon was his old name. Peter was his new name. Simon reflected the old life, and Peter reflected the new life. He said, Simon, Simon. And the fact that he said it twice shows the significance of the statement. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan, listen, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat which is another way of saying Satan is asked to have his way with you. Satan is asked to put pressure in your life, to turn up the heat in your life. The very next verse, verse 32, Jesus doesn't say, but I told him no. Doesn't say, but I told him he couldn't touch you. Verse 32, Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. And he says, in the end, Simon, I want you to encourage your brothers. Now, this is the reality of life in this world. God in his sovereignty, has chosen to allow suffering. He's chosen to allow persecution that leads to suffering. We can't deny that. We turn on the television. We turn on our computers and the Internet. We pick up a newspaper and we read these horrific reports of our brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted and tortured and executed in different parts of the world. They're being beheaded around the world. These are people that are part of our spiritual family. And we ask the question, God, why do you let this happen? And it's a part of how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty in this world. But he says, be faithful. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. 
and I'll give you a crown of life, which is symbolic of eternal life, which reminds us that what you and I experience in this world right now today is not all there is. And we need to hang on to that. Right down next to number three, the words, the conclusion. And Brian can come because I'm out of time. We need to bring this to a close. As we already saw in the latter part of verse 10, he says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then he adds these words that we see at the conclusion of each one of these seven letters. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is Jesus' way of saying, Listen close. Pay close attention. Then he says, He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. He says, listen up. He says, be faithful. I'm going to give you a crown of life. I'm going to give you eternal life. And when you have eternal life, that means you're not going to suffer the second death. There's a first death and a second death. The first death is going to be a reality for all of us at some point, unless Jesus calls us to meet him in the sky one day before we die. But if that never happens, it's going to be a reality for all of us. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we're all going to die, physically die. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, when the time for the second death comes, you don't have to fear it. You won't be harmed by it. That's the death that happens for those who are going to stand before the judgment seat, the judgment throne, the throne of judgment, whose names, to use the language of the, new, uh, the book of Revelation, are not found in the Lamb's book of life, people who have never put their faith and trust in Christ, and they're, they're going to suffer the judgment of eternal separation from God. He said, you don't have to be afraid of that. If you're an overcomer, you don't have to be afraid of that. And we take great comfort in that. I hope that's a reality for your life this morning, for every one of you here in this room, all of you across the street, all of you listening to me online. I hope that's the reality for your life today. If it's not, it can be. It can be. You can have that assurance even right now today.